thank you, men. Again, a warm welcome to all of you today. I trust for those of you, if this is your first time, in fact, I think I know it, you've been already warmly welcomed. So as you settle in now for the hearing of God's Word, why don't you grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus. If you are one visiting with us this morning and do not have a copy of God's Word, just look in the racks in front of you. You will see one there, the second book of that Bible, Exodus, Genesis, and then Exodus, and we are in Exodus 20. Well, Westmount, we indeed arrive at the 10th and final commandment this morning. The 10th word from God and a commandment that serves like a platform. This tenth word is a fitting last word in this table as it serves as a stabilizer. It's a word of protection, and we've seen many words of protection, but this one particularly undergirds really all of the table, fittingly the tenth. This word, as we'll see today, is designed to guard the epicenter of all behavior, the heart, the heart. Yes, the heart, indeed, again, is ground zero to really all law-breaking. All law-breaking finds its origin in the heart. It is what flows from the heart that is the root of an abundance of evil. Consider for a moment what Jesus taught us in Mark 7, verse 20. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, Jesus says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus goes on to say, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So all of that, according to Christ, flows right from the heart of man. All of that law-breaking and noted, and I want you to note, Westmont, particularly in the day and age that we live in, all that law-breaking isn't a result of what's on the outside. All that law-breaking starts from within. You can see how all-wise our God is. He understands the heart of man. All of it starts on the inside. That is the source of law-breaking. And beloved, you, you don't need to think long to see where other laws fall short. Can you think with me for a moment? This is where every other standard of law falls short. Laws of society and civilizations, all externally focused. Think of the laws of other religions, all defining external acts. They all fall short because they're missing the root. Yet, not with our great God, not with our omniscient God. He knows man. That is what we have sung this morning, is it not? It's what we know from his word. Think of texts like Psalm 139, just to name one, and then another, John 2. He knows what's in the heart of man. As such, his law, yes, even the Old Testament manifestation and administration of his law, includes and addresses the heart of man. And I don't want us to miss that this morning. 
We've talked so much about the internal, external, and just see where the ten words land this morning. Beloved, we need to understand this as we land these ten commandments today. These words are unlike anything man attempts to put together. Have you not seen that in the study? This is unlike anything man attempts to contrive. These words, as we'll see this morning, and in fact, as we've seen throughout, in their fullness, and think of Jesus defining repeatedly the law of God in the New Testament, these words indeed address the heart. It is not just to worship God alone, but to love him with all your heart. It is not just refraining from taking a life, a physical life, but the law of God says you must not hate another life from your heart. It is not just the physical act of adultery, lying with another. No, according to the law of God, it is not lusting after another from your heart. And today we'll examine one of the most direct commands in Scripture about the heart. A command of God designed to protect the heart, to keep it pure, to keep it content. Let us look at it now along with these final few verses in this section. These verses that remind us of the context. Look down at verse 17 with me. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Father in heaven, Lord, we see those words and we ask for illumination to truly see them. Lord, for many of us, give us fresh eyes this morning to see what we miss in our temporal distraction. For others, illuminate these for the first time as words may be read for the first time. And for all of us, may we receive them. May we understand them. And God, by your enablement, may we go out and live them. To your glory we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to study these verses again under two headings. It's become a very familiar outline, has it not? But it's very simple. Ten words are very simple. Two places we're going this morning, this is it, an unlawful heart and a lawful heart. That's what we're going to see in these verses, an unlawful heart and a lawful heart. So let's begin with a closer look at verse 17, zero in there, as we look at an unlawful heart. You'll see that in this verse, an unlawful heart. Verse 17 says this, you shall not covet, stop there. You shall not covet. Before we look at the objects of coveting defined here, let's look at coveting. First of all, the word covet, you can look at it there, means to desire, to crave, to want passionately. It's often used as a neutral word, but here in this context, it very much has a negative bent, and we're going to talk about that. This word, as it is often used, again in the New Testament, and is used often this way, details an attempt to acquire something 
from that passion, from that craving, from that desire. This is inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something, and here it is, friends, something that's not yours. This is the same word, by the way, found in Genesis 3, in the account of the fall. You remember this. Remember, the text says in Genesis 3, Eve saw the tree to be desired to make one wise. That's the same word. That's what was going on in Eve. Same thing here. Same desire in view, covetous desire, the beginning of sin. And we've talked about that at length in Genesis 3, how that was the beginning. Here too, the beginning of sin from the heart. And note, as we consider the fall in Genesis 3, the fruit at the point of the text we read wasn't even taken yet. Remember, two commands ago, we looked at seeing and taking. Sandwich in between that is the desire. This is the difference. The seeing and taking is fueled by the desire that wants. Sin birthed in the heart by way of unlawful desire, and that's so key. And we know how it ends. In fact, this is how it ends every time with unlawful desire. Consider James 1.15. Desire, the text says, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see that? Death. What Eve's unlawful heart desire led to, death. And so it is, beloved, with coveting. Coveting, desire from an unlawful heart. Desire that looks at what is not theirs and lingers there and says, I want that. I want that. It's not mine, but I want it. Now consider with me, desire and coveting is often something you cannot see, right? You rarely get someone walking around with this posture. I want that. Give me that. I'll stop at nothing to get that. Give me that. You don't see that. Often, words, though, reveal it. Is that not true? Words can reveal something that's simmering in the heart. It's because ultimately, coveting takes place in the realm of the heart. Remember, as Jesus reminded us, deep inside man. However, church, just because this is on the inside doesn't mean it is ignored. Far from it with a holy, omniscient God. Far from it. And we're reminded here, again, of the uniqueness and might of our God. We said already where man's laws and false religions have nothing to say about the inside, here it is, beloved, our God, your God does. And I want this to be a great comfort. This is a penetrating tenth word, a penetrating word like it often is in the Bible. But I want this to be your comfort this morning. Our God cares about what's on the inside. Yes, the only true God, our God, does indeed look on the heart. First Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Kings 8.39 says, For you, Lord, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. In fact, I want you to think about that reference there in 1 Chronicles. That was given by David. David. Let me read it again. David said, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And what's interesting to note about that is remember how it all started for David and his infamous sin. On the rooftop in 2 Samuel 11, desiring, coveting Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, 
that violation of the tenth commandment led to all kinds of manner of sin. Do you remember the account? It led to a violation of the eighth commandment, seeing, taking, stealing your eyes rife. That covening then led to a violation of the seventh commandment. He lay with her, committing adultery. That violation led to, uh, or that commandment, the ninth commandment was violated with repeated setups. Do you remember by David? Repeatedly trying to set up Uriah. Then, of course, a violation of the sixth commandment when eventually, do you remember the end of the account, Uriah is murdered. Do you see all of those law-breaking uh, acts by David flowing out of a covetous heart from that rooftop? And so too with us, with an unlawful heart. That's where it starts. All of David's sin, by way of example, his downfall, think of it, think of all that sin, all of it started on the roof when he saw and he desired, and, he, and then it launched into a whole host of other sins because he coveted another man's wife. And that brings us back to the 10th command and its context here in Exodus 20. I just want us to consider this verse again. Look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Objects there, by the way, associated with neighbor. Do you see that? All kinds of neighborly objects. And as we commented last week, neighbor means anyone. Anyone. This is not just fellow believers or those on your street. Neighbor is anyone else that's not you. Thus, this is anything belonging to, rightfully owned by, anyone else other than yourself. And consider how sweeping the list is here. Look at it by way of scan in verse 17. House, wife, stuff, all of it. And so we're clear this means all. Look at the end of verse 17. Or anything, that's inclusive, that is your neighbor's. This is that desire that births in the heart, that pines for, that lusts for, that craves after what is rightfully someone else's. That's so important. That's what we're talking about. Often the symptoms of covetousness are comparison. You know this. You're weighing your stuff versus their stuff. Often you know covetousness is going on inside when you start sizing up what they have and sizing up what you have. That's covetousness. It's not healthy analysis, it's sin. Often covetousness manifests itself as complaining. Well, this is bad, and in some way you'll get a line in there about how good theirs is, but yours is really bad, and you can't stand this thing. Beloved, it's sin. At times, covetousness masquerades as a savior. Have you, do you know this one? All I need is that. If I had that, life would be good. My problems would be over. That's all I need. And thus, I lust for it, I crave it, I want it. That's coveting in many stripes, and in every way, we need to say this conclusively this morning, coveting is sin. Coveting is sin. Coveting is sin springing from an unlawful heart and, listen, with very damaging effects. Covetousness is not something you just need to, to get over, or something you can pass by. Covetousness has damaging effects. Coveting causes you to miss, here it is, to miss what you actually do have and what is yours. You miss what God has given you. 
because you're too busy coveting that, theirs. Coveting robs you of the blessings of enjoying what you have, and here it is, what you have in all its uniqueness. I hear this all the time. I'll give you just one example, the most infamous and most tragic, coveting in marriages. The man or the woman coveting another man's wife or husband. I wish my husband was like him. I wish she, my wife, was like her. And so often, before we get to the sin of all that, we want to say, look at the gift you've been given there. There's only one of your wife. There's only one of your husband. Half your battle would be turning your attention to the joy and blessing of what you do have. You see that? Very important. Yes, when you covet, you show disrespect to what you do have. Home or mate, it's disrespectful. Listen, coveting disables you. You're impaired from seeing your successes and gains. It's painful to see someone in the grips of covetousness, maybe thriving and having things of benefit, and they can't see it because they're lusting after something else. Covetousness impairs you. Covetousness, listen, it also disables you and drains you. You undergo a slow burn as you covet, but you can't have, so you're simmering because you feel like, Everything hinges on having that. And most of all, beloved, most of all, coveting dishonors God. Dishonors God. It it looks at God's allotments. Remember God's plan, what he's given to you. All under his sovereignty, he's given you by way of provision, all that you have. It looks at all of that and it spits in the face of God's providence and says, God, you got this wrong. Because all I need is that, and all I want is this. And if you reorganize the chess pieces better, I'll be better. That's an unlawful heart, and God's law protects. Do you see how we need God's law here? We need God's law because it protects our diseased heart. So how do we respond? Is there help for our covetousness? Maybe you're feeling helpless. Is there help for our covetousness? Yes. Well, that's next. We've looked at an unlawful heart. Now we look at a lawful heart. Beloved, if an unlawful heart is covetous, then mark this, a lawful heart is content. It's so obvious, isn't it? If an unlawful heart is covetous, then I submit to you, a lawful heart is content. It has no vision. It's not trying to peer over any fence. It's just right in its own wheelhouse. That is a content and lawful heart. Just some reminders, by the way, of the new covenant, also revealing the law of God. 1 Timothy 6, 6, mark this, godliness, that is, living God's way, godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. It's not just a good thing, it's a great gain in the eyes of our Lord. Contentment is satisfaction with what you do have and what God, with what God has given you. Consider another text in the New Testament, Philippians 4.11. Paul says, in jail, by the way, in jail, I have learned in whatever situation I am to what? Be content. Church, the certain cure for covetousness is contentment every time. Do you see that? That's contentment by way of the Apostle Paul that transcends circumstance. That's the beauty of contentment. And I want to be clear by way of application this morning. I want to be clear. Contentment is not resting in your subjective thoughts of something. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not what you think 
something is or how good or bad or anything at all. It's not by your sizing up of how effective this particular thing or person is in your life. That's not what it is. Because listen, we have all kinds of subjective feelings about our homes, about our jobs, about our spouses, about our stead. Listen, the key to contentment is not is to throw out that measuring stick. To just throw it out. In fact, if I could lovingly be bold to you this morning, it doesn't matter how you size up those things in God's economy. We have a very skewed perception, do we not, of what God has given to us. No contentment, and here it is, contentment is resting in God's objective providence. Does that make sense? His objective, very clear, factual, evidential providence that's manifest in your life. It's looking at what you actually have, what is yours, what is given. There's no relativity there. What you have is yours. Contentment says, I'm content with all my things simply because, here it is, I'm content simply because the Lord has given them to me. You see that? I'm content because the Lord has given it. In in God's sovereign omniscience, his all wisdom, he's given me everything I have. And thus, I'm content. I'm content. I hope we see the difference. And listen, this is important because don't try to muster content feelings without the giver in view. Have you been there? You try to muster up contentment and you fail to see the one that provides all things. You'll derail every time. More, know that contentment is impossible without the one that God gave for us. The one David reminded us about this morning. You just can't be content without recognizing the provision The one God has given. Listen to later in the same chapter, Paul takes us right there. You want to talk about the secret, if we would call it that, of contentment. He says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through positive thoughts, mindfulness, pulling up your bootstraps properly, getting the right steps in order, really good effort. I can do all things if I just will it to be. No. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. By the way, don't take that verse out of context. We joke so many of us put it on running shoes and all kinds of uh, achievements that you need to make. It has nothing to do with outcome at all. And you see in context there's everything to do with contentment with what you have. Paul actually says, I've learned in every situation to be content. That's what it means to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it is, Christ. Christ. He is the only market beloved. I can't say this. If I had a big highlighter and neon lights, I would give it right now. Christ is the only solution to covetousness. There is no other. Submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and what is in your place, unless you do that, you will never be content. And you will always struggle with covetousness. In fact, Christ is a solution, quite frankly, to all things regarding law fulfillment, and we've peeked in that through this study. The only reason we can even walk lawfully, as we've said, is because of the perfect provision, the one Jesus Christ. He takes our unlawful heart and grants us a new one, a lawful one. A new heart beating by way of the Holy Spirit enables us now to walk rightly, And it is only because of Christ and Christ alone that we can walk lawfully under God. Because of Christ's enablement, praise God. Praise the Lord. 
Now, Westmount, we need to be reminded of this today as we wrap our study of the Ten Commandments because we might today be feeling the same way God's people did then when they received them. Remember, standing at the foot of that mountain, hearing this law of God unveiled in all its grandeur, Let's now consider one last time this scene, the context of receiving this law of God. God introduced these ten words with a manifestation, remember, of his felt presence. Do you remember the mountain? Remember chapter 19, the thunders and lightning, which were plural, by the way, the thick cloud and the very loud trumpet blast, where afterwards, chapter 19, verse 16, it says, all the people trembled. That's the receiving in the context here. And that was before, by the way, that was before God had communicated anything at all about his law. That's just a revelation of who God is. They hadn't even got to what he defines for them. Very important. Well, what happens then when that same nation that sees God and hears from their God, what happens when that nation learns of the holiness of their God, the set-apartness of their God, the devotion called for by their God through law, through law? There they stand confronted with a God demanding their absolute devotion to him. I just want you to consider that. A mighty God in thunder and lightning and a loud trumpet blast and says, your ultimate devotion, your every breath is devoted to me. I think you begin to get a sense as to what's missing today, right? Utter devotion to God. And how is that then? This holy God says on the mountain, he says, through proper theology and proper worship. Freed people who have been freed by God, you are now free to no other gods but to me alone. Amazing. You're free to worship no carved images, the, the enslavement of idolatry. You're free to that. Listen, yes, Egypt is not like that, and where you're going, Canaan won't be either, but you must be different, my people. As well, you redeemed are to employ, remember, proper words. Don't use my name in vain, God told them, or profanely, or as we learned, or to heaping up excessive words. It matters not where you've come from or who you were or how your mouth was trained. What matters now is who you are now, that you're called holy now. You've been given ability now. A holy people setting apart proper words and also proper days. You are not set apart through a string of common days. You're not like everyone else who just lives day to day to day to day. No, that's not you. That's not you. Not every day looks the same for the Christian. And it shouldn't. No, you now set aside a holy day, fully devoted unto the Lord. Fully devoted to Him. And delivered people, listen, you now protect your relationships. You protect family first. You don't ignore or curse dad and mom, but rather you honor them rightly and you give them the weight that they're due. And for you that have been purchased from death, you now protect life. Your life has been spared and now you protect life. You do not murder. You do not take the life of another image bearer of God. Whether they're on the womb or on the deathbed, you do not do that. And you, holy people... You protect marriage. Spouse, you do not give yourself to another. You do not join yourself to another. And you certainly don't lust after another. 
Of course, the surrounding nations do it, as they do all else that they seem is right in their own sight. Is that not true? They do it and they justify it. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's no laws for that. You can cheat on your wife all you want and you won't get thrown in prison. But not you. But not you. Your relationships are different and your community must be too. Yes, you, beloved, protect community. You do not see and take. You work and you work hard. You see a need and what do you do with your things? You share them. It's the economy of a Christian. And of course, you as God's people protect witness. You do not live by false witness. Listen, that is the world around you. They live by lies, not you. You live by the true witness. That's what you live by. You live out the character of your God, the only God. And here you, man and woman of God, see how God protects your heart. Do not give a moment's head space or heart space to your neighbor's goods. Watch your heart. Do not covet. God says, that is my law and my word to you. That's what he says to his people. Do not covet. Protect your heart. Consider the reception of this law, especially in light of man's heart condition. I just want us to pause and think for a moment. Can you just imagine, given the heart condition of man at the foot of that mountain, and maybe today, the reception of such things? Can you just grasp it? We can't. How is man to grasp this? How could anyone stand there and claim to be able to live like that? How can anyone say audaciously, oh yeah, Yahweh, I got this one. Church, the thought of mustering up self-righteousness and your own good works, listen, can I level with you? It's just plain absurdity. It's absurdity to think, yes, I can live that way. Sure, I might falter here and there. Nobody's perfect, but I know you demand perfection, but I think I'm going to be okay in the end. It's absolutely a ridiculous notion. Not to mention impossible. And if there is any misguided attempts lingering, God provides a reminder. And let's not miss this. This is no tack on to the ten words. Very crucial bookend to the ten words. Look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is a lot, and you probably recognize it. This here, the descriptions are a lot like chapter 19, right? just before the law was given. So you see how this is framed in the exact same way. And now we see it again. Holy reminders of the lawgiver. You have the law, the ten words, but reminders on the bookends of the one giving the law. In Westmount, we've noted this repeatedly, it seems, in recent weeks and certainly in our study of Exodus since the fall. This, look at verses 18 to 21. This is the response to a holy God. This is the response to who God is. Beloved, is it not true? You've seen this over and over and over again. It's not warm fuzzies. It's not a quick head nod. It's not a passing sure. It is absolutely nothing like the watered-down receptions we see to God today. Is that not true? Absolutely watered down. Yeah, I'm okay with God. 
I like a little bit of Jesus. That's not what you see in this text at all. I, I want us, I must belabor this point so that we're clear when the text emphasizes something, so to us. No church, the response to a holy God, as we see here, again, cannot be clearer in these verses. And we're seeing it verse after verse after verse. We've covered this already because the Bible does. Is that not true? Over and over again, the Bible covers this. And here it is again. That means we need to hear it. And let me give you one reason before we look at these verses to end why this is important. In fact, I can only, I'll give you one and that's all that's needed. We have absolutely lost our fear of God today. It's gone. And people will say to me, what's going on and what's wrong? I just want to answer. No one fears God anymore. And look, I'm not talking about out there. We know they don't even have eyes to see God or a heart that beats for God. I'm talking about, well, not physically in here, but in the church. Nobody fears God. They profess Jesus, but they don't fear God. All of a sudden, the past two years, fearing God got awfully uncomfortable. All of a sudden, the past two years, fearing God could give you a ticket. Or you'll lose dinner invitations on your street. Or perish the thought you may end up in prison. All of a sudden, we've lost the fear of God. People say, what's wrong with our governments? They don't fear God. We've seen the trajectory. People say, what's wrong with marriages? There's no fear of God. People say, what's wrong in the home? What's wrong with my kids? What's wrong with me? There's no fear of God. There's no fear of God anywhere in anyone that would profess to know God. It's gone. So I ask you and submit to you, is this not important? The text we're going to see before us that illustrates to us, that gets to the very root of our problem as God's people. This is the proper, fitting response to a holy God. Number one, fear and trembling. Look at verse 18 and see it for ourselves. Fear and trembling. And say, what's the remedy to the things of the day? This, yes, fear and tremble before a holy God. And why fear and trembling? Because the people recognize in light of what they see and what they hear, they cannot possibly withstand this. God is someone they are not, and he calls them to be something they are not. That's terrifying. Beloved, any other understanding of God that does not include that is not real. It's not real. Consider for a moment the New Testament and the law of God articulated fully by Jesus. We've looked at this numerous times as Jesus expounds the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to Jesus expounding on the law, which should bring us to our knees. So many people want to sideswipe Jesus' expansion and, and fuller explanation of the law and say, well, that's Jesus. That would be really good to do, but we can't. No, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to bring you to your knees in tears if need be to say, I can't. I, I can't do this. And that's where you're getting somewhere. A recognition that you can't, but it doesn't mean you give up. We'll get to that more in a moment. The recognition, fear and trembling brings you to your knees to say, I don't know what to do, and that's good. Which brings us to our second point, fear and trembling. Secondly, the understanding that the fear of God is good. Yes, I cannot say this enough. The fear of God is good. Look at verse 20. It's good. I want you to just consider this verse again. Just listen to it. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Look at this that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses tells the people that God has come to what? Test them. 
Now, students in the room will tell you that tests are not good, and certainly I would certainly echo that at times, still might. Tests aren't good. No, here we're reminded tests are good. We see a test straight from God Almighty, and why? Why? Look at it. So that the fear of him, Yahweh, may be before you. And look at this. That you may not sin. Hear that? That is fear of God, express purpose, so that you may not sin. Do you see that? That's incredible. The struggle with sin is every believer's struggle. See Romans 7. Every believer's struggle. And I want you to rejoice today in the news of a help for that struggle. And it's this. The help for your struggle with sin is the fear of God. It's the fear of God. Yes, rejoice in the fear of God as you help. I want to read you something before I do. I just want to give you exhibit A. And that is society today. You are seeing the operation, the controlling aspect of fear in full operation, are you not? Fear is powerful. The problem today is it's the wrong fear. I've heard people say time and time again, they won't gather, they won't do what God calls them to do through Chandango. Why? Because of their neighbor. What will their neighbor think? Well, when I hear expressions like that, I'm reminded, you fear, you're fearing the wrong one. You're fearing neighbor and your reputation before neighbor before you fear God first. As is often the case, someone says this so well. These things are always timeless, and it's worth repeating in full. I want you to consider this from scholar and professor Douglas Stewart. He's just commenting on this verse. He says this, listen. Moses reassured the people with the assertion in verse 20 that God's closeness was a means of testing them to see if they really would be afraid of disobeying him by sinning. And that's what we read, right? God has come to test you so the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, listen to this. It was an altogether good thing that the people were terrified of God. Their reaction indicated that they would be afraid of offending him through sin and thus their fear would function as a discipline to keep them from sin. That's not popular today, is it? No one wants to say that. This is, in fact, always the value of the much-encouraged fear of God in Scripture. Now note this. I love how he crafts. This is perfect. Being afraid of the consequences of disobeying God is among the most helpful attitudes any believer can possibly have. Those who try to suggest that the various commands to fear God are merely encouragements to hold him in some sort of honor or awe completely miss the point that fear is a beneficial guiding mechanism for human behavior. And if we don't agree, he gives a slew of examples. Let me just give you a few. And think about this in your life. Fear of death or injury helps people to drive safely. Fear of heart attacks helps people keep their cholesterol levels low. Fear of academic failure helps people study and learn. Fear of harming children keeps marriages together. He says this, fear is a basic motivator of human behavior and attempts to deny that the Bible actually tells us we should fear God are quite misplaced. Beloved, you have fears. I've said this to so many of you. People say, well, don't you fear anything at Westmount? Listen, we have lots of fears at Westmount, do we not? But all fears around one orbit the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's our fear here at Westmount. We fear God. We go on record to say that. Oh, we have fear, all right. And it's God alone. And may we act in accordance to the fear of God. But I want you to see as you consider fear 
is a powerful influence on your behavior. You will live out your fears. You will, you will live out your fears. And you're living them out now. Three, a recognition of the distance between that God and you. Look at verse 18 and verse 21. What else have we needed to remind ourselves of lately? Not only God fear, but listen, and it's this truth, that we are not God. You see all kinds of people in the pandemic struggling with this. You're not God. God is holy and altogether other. We are simply, again, this is not popular, but it's what God says. We are simply nothing in comparison to God. We're nothing. Nothing in comparison to God. Easy believe folks balk at that, but they reject it in spite of the evidence. I kind of chuckle. I'm not as up on this as many of you are, but you know those rich boys playing astronaut, right? They're all being shot up into space and doing all kinds of things. It's quite a show. I mean, just a few minutes. They're, they're vying for just a few minutes outside Earth's atmosphere, right? And they've achieved it. They've done it. They've conquered the world, right? That's kind of the thing. You listen to some of them very closely. I've conquered the world. Literally, I'm above the world. And they've achieved it. That's something. And I want to ask these guys, are anyone thinking that they're on par with the heavens, I want to say to them this, okay, that's good, three minutes in Earth's orbit, but can you create Earth? And, and, and while you're at it, can you create a solar system? Oh, and you know what, now how about a universe? Can you do that? Can you do that? Listen, one of our fundamental problems, friends, and this is glaring today, is that we like to think we have power and control where we don't. Again, and I must, because it's a great application in today's age, use... The pandemic again. That's the problem, is it not? Attempts by so many to control COVID-19. And that's why it was so refreshing this week. Many of you have commented on it to me. When Dina Hinshaw stood up in Alberta and actually started talking rationally. And what did she say? I know, I know. And what did she say? We need to, and this was, and, and people hated it. Dina Hinshaw said, you know what? We need to start treating this like the flu. And we need to learn to, and here it is, live with COVID. That's sane. <laughs> And rational. And she's being vilified in Alberta because you were on our team and now you're not on our team. What are you doing? But the point is this. She stood up like so many of you, and I know this, and we all recognize we're not God. The only one that can stop a virus is God. It's God. That's it. No one else is sovereign over every molecule. Sarcy Sproul has reminded us. No one else. God alone. Let's not forget that. God alone. Fourthly, a recognition that we need a mediator to bridge the gap. So it's not enough to come and be brought to your knees. It's not enough to be reminded in the face of the law how sinful we are, and we'll come back to that in a moment. There's a recognition that we need a mediator to bridge the gap. If God is all holy and he's all loving, and if he's calling us to himself, then there must be an enablement somewhere because we can't do this. So where is the bridge? Where is the mediation? How do we do this? Verse 19. And remember what we noted when we started the Ten Commandments, their purpose, and we come back to that fittingly to close. We're going to put these pieces together. In verse 19, Moses said, you speak to us. This is what the people are saying, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. What are they crying out for? We need a mediator. We need someone like you, Moses, that clearly has some sort of relationship with God, some sort of access to God, right? The burning bush, the plagues. We need someone like you. To give us access to God. Let's now, beloved, put the pieces together and look at them. A reminder of where we were a few weeks ago, where we started. The purpose of these words is to reveal God's holiness. Indeed, they have. His character and his standard have been revealed with 
vivid clarity here in Exodus. The purpose of these words is also to reveal our sinfulness, and I believe that's true. I believe it's true for all of us, as we've seen here. Have they not done that over and over again, revealing our sinfulness? We think about the knowledge of sin. Listen to Paul in Romans 7. He says this as he's expounding on the law vis-a-vis sin. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, think of the purpose of the law, I would not have known sin. You see what he's saying? If it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known. You tell the police officer, I had no idea it was 60. Because you didn't know it until you were told it and revealed it. Right? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We're now accountable to these things because now we know it, right? The law has been given. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What's he saying? Through the law came knowledge of sin. You know you're a sinner by practice because of the law. And you know you're a sinner by nature when you look at the revealed word of God. And that can be a very... Hopeless feeling if you leave it there. But then we also are reminded that the purpose of these words is to reveal our need for fulfillment. God didn't just reveal this to laugh at us that you can't do it. He's trying and he's doing this in his sovereignty, showing us that we cannot do this. God gives words to live by, the law. But as we know now in word and practice, we can't. Even the mightiest in Israel. I want you to think even of Moses, this mediator they called out to. Did Moses enter the promised land? No, he didn't. Moses didn't because of his sin. What about David? We referenced him earlier. Even think of Peter in the New Testament. All fall short. Without our ability to fulfill the law, you might say, well, then who can be saved? That, of course, was the cry in Luke 18. Do you remember the cry of the crowd? Turn there, Luke 18. Around a certain rich young ruler, Jesus teaching about the law... And what's interesting is the way that he teaches about it and where he lands in the heart. And that's their cry. But let's look at it. Jesus here is giving another mini exposition of the laws. You see him do so often in his ministry. Let's just pick up this account in verse 18. This happens so often. People coming up to Jesus asking questions. Now, this young man, and you'll see this in context, is very, feeling very confident of himself. This would be the man like maybe your neighbor would say, I'm all right. I'm doing okay. What Trudeau and Ford and Terry and say, I obey it. I'm, I'm a good guy, right? And this is what you're going to see right here. Look at this. Ruler asks him, good teacher. He's feeling good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's, this is one of those questions in his back pocket. I've already got this one, but I need to feel better about myself, so let me ask it. And Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? In other words, he's trying to tell him, you recognize in one sense who the only good teacher is. It's me, Jesus says. Why do you call me good? So wait, I say, you actually really don't know who you're talking to. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And here, here it is. Jesus goes again to the law. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, so think about this. He's like, I've table of the law, got it all. I'm there. Jesus turns to him and says, one thing you still lack. Set all that you have and distribute to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Wow. In other words, you've done the externals. Now let's look, rich young man, at the inside. Let's look at the inside. What's going on in your heart? 
And so clearly we see in response, it's the heart that brings this guy to his knees. It brings him to his knees. We continue. He heard these things. He became very sad for he was extremely rich. In other words, he might have had stuff. Think about this in light of covetousness. He had everything in the world. But an inability to recognize Christ for who he is and gain eternal life. You can be the rich young ruler all you want. You can own everything. But if you don't recognize Christ and your heart condition and his remedy, you have nothing. And then Jesus, this is where he famously says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, what he's saying, those that don't recognize the heart disease that they have, the things that they won't let go of in their heart, those heart possessions, the affections and the affinity for goods and temporal things, if you cannot let go of that, yes, in fact, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, they say, who can be saved? Think about their measuring stick. They have all these external measures. Well, Lord, who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that brings us to this last one. The purpose of the words is the point of the fulfillment. The fulfillment. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And what did God do? He, of course, sent this one, this Jesus that we're looking at here, to do what we cannot do. That's the incredible context of the rich young ruler. You did a lot of things and you brought it to Jesus. But you can't do everything. In fact, nowhere close. You're standing before the good teacher, God himself, who did it. Sent by the Father, the Son. And I want you to hear the Son again. We've looked at this, Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he did. And so he did on earth. Thus, we are not left with futile cries, but now we're left with this reality. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christian, listen, only in Christ can you consider the weight of the law. And yet, when you think about the heaviness and your inability and the need for a mediator, only in Christ then can you say this, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That's powerful, right? Law is powerful. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's where our hope is found, and only here in Christ's fulfillment Christ's fulfillment. Only he can take the unlawful heart and make it lawful unto him. That is how we, each one of us, walk in righteousness before God's law. There's only one way. And we end the ten words with this. In Christ. Only. Alone. God alone in Christ alone. There is no other way. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to do what we cannot do. And God, forgive us, please, in your grace and mercy, when we fail to recognize that our self-righteousness are indeed rags before you in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Lord, as we look to live out your law, help us to continually turn to your Son, Jesus Christ. His great and sure fulfillment enables every step we take. So God, we pray that we would be enabled in that as we leave this place today, In the mighty name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.